Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a fitting story for World Refugee Day. Zephyr Teachout, candidate for New York Attorney General, plus a lawyer who works with a Muslim American advocacy group, talks about being barred from speaking at his New York City synagogue. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, filling in for Ashley Ford. So, it's World Refugee Day today which we can still observe even though the United States is receiving far fewer refugees than ever, about a fourth of the number we've received by this time than in previous years. We're going to recognize this day by spotlighting an organization that's working with refugees here in Brooklyn. It's called Emma's Torch, and it's actually a restaurant on Smith Street, which provides culinary training to refugees to help prepare them for careers in the food industry. And we have Executive Director Kerry Brody on the phone to tell us more. Kerry, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining us. Um, So tell me, just, Carrie, I'm curious, how did the idea for Emma's Torch come about? I have a background in public policy, and I, at the same time, was volunteering at a homeless shelter and really questioning this idea of how do we feed people in a way that is not just about calories, but it's about nourishment and about changing lives. And so it dawned on me that my memories of cooking with my mother and with my grandmother in D.C. are not that different than the memories of so many people cooking with their mothers and grandmothers, whether they're in Aleppo or Venezuela or St. Petersburg. And so with that in mind, um, I started working on this crazy idea that we could create a restaurant that not only serves delicious food, but really helps to change the lives of refugees who are resettled in New York. Hmm. And so this is for refugees resettled in New York. And I'm assuming it's in Brooklyn because that's where you live now? It is, and I think that the Brooklyn community has been particularly welcoming, and it's just been a really wonderful place to get started in. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk about some of the circumstances of some of the individuals who have come through Emma's Torch? So a lot of our students fall into three major categories. They are refugees or survivors of human trafficking or asylees. And so for refugees, that often means that they are fleeing from kind of large-scale conflicts, like the conflict in Syria. For asylees, it can often be more small-scale, so it's things like fleeing because of their LGBTQ identity. Or for our survivors of trafficking, it means that they, they actually were not brought here out of their own free will. They were kidnapped and really sold into slavery in kind of one of the most heinous examples of, of the terrible things that people can do to one another. And so our hope is that we can help all of these different people through our program show them a better a better face of humanity. Wow, that's great. So what have some of the results been? Have you been able to place a lot of these individuals or help them get jobs in the restaurant service industry? Definitely. We've really been embraced by the restaurant industry. We had a smaller location in Red Hook for six months, and all of our job-seeking candidates were not only able to place in jobs, but many of them have actually been promoted and really launched new careers. And we just graduated our first group out of our new location in Carroll Gardens, and that group is already on the job market, all interviewing and securing exciting jobs in different restaurants throughout the city. Wow, fantastic. And can you just talk a little bit about the current plight of refugees and the federal government's position on receiving and resettling refugees in the United States? I mean, we talk about how those numbers are down, um, that the, the number of refugees we're accepting has been, has been reduced by a lot, yet there are still refugees who are in need of these kinds of services. Definitely. I think that we, of course, as a nonprofit, don't wade into politics, but it's it's very clear and very troubling the decrease in refugees that are being resettled here in the U.S. and in the backlog of once they are resettled and once asylees are brought in, the backlog in them actually getting 
legal U.S. work authorizations. So we're seeing not only examples where more and more people are not being granted resettlement here. Um, I think I saw a statistic that as of last month, something like only 11 refugees from Syria had been resettled this year. Hmm. But also troubling is um, seeing instances where family reunification, so instances where a family member is here and they have family members still abroad, um, we are seeing it be very troubling that they're not being brought over, that families aren't being brought together. Um, and that's something that, that is upsetting to us and definitely doesn't ring true for, for America being a melting pot and being a place that welcomes in the stranger. Mm -hmm. So we're, we hope that, uh, you know, that we can send a clear message that we are, we are our strongest, we are our best selves, and we do welcome in the stranger and that we can see an increase of, in refugees being welcomed here. And, and certainly you can testify to the types of individuals who are coming here and what they're able to contribute. So I wonder, speaking of that contribution, can you tell me what's on the menu at MS Torch on a given night? Sure. We have a really eclectic menu that really highlights the different skills that our students are learning as well as different flavor profiles from all over the world. So we have our now famous lakai hummus, which is a combination of quintessentially American ingredients, such as lakai peas, paired with flavors that you would find in a hummus um, anywhere mm. in the Middle East. Wow. Uh, we have a, a really delicious pistachio bread pudding, which takes all the flavors that are mm, predominant in baklava, but applies it to bread pudding. It melts in your mouth and is totally delicious. We really love serving what our students create and are really proud of what they're able to, to bring to the table. Well, that's great. So, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. Real quick, if you can tell people who are interested in learning more about Emma's Torch where they can go to find that information. Definitely. You can check us out at emmastorch.org, or you can visit us. We're at the corner of Smith and Carroll in Brooklyn. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Coming up, Zephyr Teachout will talk about her bid to become New York's next attorney general, and then a lawyer for the Council on American-Islamic Relations who's been barred from speaking at his New York City synagogue because of his work. Stay tuned. Four years ago, she vied to become New York's governor, garnering a surprising 34% of the primary vote against incumbent Andrew Cuomo. This year, she signed on to help the latest Cuomo challenger, Cynthia Nixon. But when popular Attorney General Eric Schneiderman stepped down after accusations of sexual harassment and abuse, she decided to run again for statewide office herself. She enters a crowded field of highly qualified candidates, but we're going to hear now from Zephyr Teachout why she thinks she can prevail this time around. Zephyr, welcome to 112BK. Oh, it's wonderful to be on. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, why did you decide to enter this somewhat crowded field to vie for Attorney General? The Attorney General's job in New York is maybe the most important, but it's certainly one of the most important legal jobs in the country, um, and certainly the most important legal job in the state for standing up to Donald Trump, not just resisting his illegal actions, but actually using the powers of the attorney general to look into his businesses. Mm -hmm. The attorney general in New York is responsible for the integrity of the nonprofits and the corporations and the businesses that are here in New York. And we can see in a pretty blatant way the way that the Trump organization is violating the Constitution. I have my own background is in constitutional law and anti-corruption law, and I've been involved in Trump litigation from the beginning. So one of the key things that I bring to this race is a deep understanding of the legal strategies that we can pursue to do more than resist, but really take on the threat in Washington. A second reason has to do with 
what's happening here in New York with the lawmakers in Albany and with stalemated stuck system in the state and unfortunately a rolling scandal of corruption trials and sexual harassment accusations that have far too often got swept under the rug. I have been outspoken for years about our need to clean up Albany. Mm. And as attorney general, uh, in this state, attorney general is elected. In other states, they're mm. appointed. As attorney general, I will stand up for making sure that we investigate corruption, whether it's with big real estate, which has a lot of power in New York, hedge funders who have a lot of political power in New York, political bigwigs. Mm -hmm. I hope people trust that I would be willing to follow the facts wherever they go. And I've been willing to do that before. To get to your first point about protecting New York state against the threat coming from Washington, is that something new for the Attorney General of New York? Have they done that in the past, or are these particularly fraught times where we really do need that bulwark? These are absolutely particularly fraught times. I mean, I was on the subway earlier, and it's hard to not weep hearing about these stories of the kids getting torn away mm-hmm. uh, from their from their parents, uh, some of whom are being brought here to New York. Right. Um, there is a uh, an administration that is doesn't seem to believe in law in many ways. There's the illegal rollback of the EPA standards, the illegal uh, bigoted Muslim ban. There are actually over a hundred lawsuits that the attorney general's office has filed against Donald Trump. So we are in a crisis moment, mm-hmm. and it's really important to have an attorney general who's ready to bring those suits, but also not just play defense, but play offense. You know, when you have an organization that is committed to dismantling some of the most precious parts of our society, we have to not merely defend and resist, but take up the sword. The one parallel is the Reagan administration. So when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, came to power, the New York attorney general really shifted the job description. It had been basically an office that defended the state against lawsuits. Hmm. And during the Reagan era, you saw the New York attorney general turn that office into uh, active uh, litigating office, bringing the Love Canal suits, uh, doing the environmental protection and the financial fraud protection that the federal government wasn't doing. So one of the things that I think is really important about this job is besides the open wounds of what the Trump administration is doing, the Republicans in Congress are basically trying to roll back all regulation of big corporations. Mm. And that means that the New York State Attorney General has to step in so that we don't allow for the kind of financial fraud on behalf of companies like ExxonMobil, a health care fraud mm-hmm. that can happen when you don't have an active federal government. Mm-hmm. So that's a critical part of the job. And that's work I've been involved with for years. I, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, for people who may not be familiar with Love Canal, which was just a toxic environment, yes. industrial kind of... It's a terrible you know, cancer-causing right. toxic. In upstate. Yes. As you mentioned, though, under Schneiderman's when it was Schneiderman's office, he initiated a number of these lawsuits, yes. over 100, which presumably any of the attorney generals who would take over that seat would continue, would further, presumably, I mean, that they're there. I mean, we just heard in the past week there are two that Barbara Underwood has continued with, the one, the investigation on the Trump Foundation, and now the lawsuit, which may be new, actually, because this came after Schneiderman, but and Cuomo announced it, him wanting to see a lawsuit against the Trump administration 
based on some constitutional issues yes. yeah. for the separation of children and families. But so how would you pursue these differently or would you? Well, well there's some very clear ways. And I, I, I want to give a lot of credit to our attorney general, Barbara Underwood, our first female attorney general. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who don't know, she's not running in the fall. Um, she's been doing an incredible job. She's a brilliant woman and an incredibly courageous woman. But there's a real, uh, there's a real missing piece in the ongoing litigation. Um, Donald Trump's organization is taking foreign money, foreign cash, from company, from governments all over the world mm. in violation of the Constitution. The Maryland Attorney General and the D.C. Attorney General whose staffs I have been working with uh, for some time now, have brought a lawsuit to stop that illegal behavior and to require the divestment, to separate Trump from the source of his power. One of the things I've believed for a long time is we have to follow the money. Mm -hmm. That's a real source of his power. It's a problem that New York State is not in that lawsuit because the businesses that form the core of the Trump um, power are actually here in New York. Mm -hmm. Trump Tower is here. Right. This is the center of the hub. And I actively encourage the last attorney general to bring this litigation. And I have a background in this litigation. So this is cutting edge. Right. These are lawsuits that haven't been brought before. And what I have done throughout my career is push the limits. I've been, I'm a creative lawyer. I spend every day deep inside the law. And working with the incredible talent that exists at the attorney general, I believe I'll bring special talent to that task. So it sounds from listening to you that not only view this as perhaps one of the most important jobs in the state, but perhaps in the country. Yes. And, and I actually see these as connected. You know, sometimes we see Trump here and the problems we have of corruption in the state over here. Mm -hmm. But the way in which they're connected is the Trump Foundation, the Trump Organization came out of New York. They came out of New York real estate, mm -hmm. honestly. And one of the things that is critical is the next attorney general needs to be totally independent and willing to look under uh, every rock when there's a corruption allegation, including if the place you're looking is one of the biggest donors in the state. Mm -hmm. If it's big real estate money or big hedge fund money, you have to be willing to go there. And I have a long history of never backing away from a hard investigation. Hmm. You mentioned earlier um, Barbara Underwood, the first uh, woman attorney yes. general in the state. As far as some of the candidates, we have Letitia James, yes. who would be the first African-American woman to be attorney general in the state. We have the New York's first openly gay member of Congress, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, who, who's vying for the seat. I mean, how much will the politics of representation, do you think, matter at the polls? I think it is so exciting. You didn't mention Alicia Eve, right, sorry, um, yes. who is also running. Mm -hmm. I think it is so exciting. Yes, yeah. I think it is so exciting after too much backroom deals and a sense of New Yorkers that everything happens outside of their uh, outside of their control, outside of their hearing, mm -hmm. to have a truly wide open attorney general race with four people who are going to bring different points of view. I'm really looking forward to the debates. And after, uh, as, as your viewers may know, we often talk about Albany as three or four men in a room. Mm -hmm. It's all men. Right. But it's been a backroom deal to have instead 
three women mm -hmm. and a man in an open race with open debates. And that's what voters want, is mm -hmm. a real discussion about what are we going to do in this crisis moment in our democracy. Mm -hmm. I, I need to ask this question, because about a month ago, the Daily News published an article where unnamed backers of yours said you shouldn't run for attorney general. Has anyone said that to your face? Uh, that I shouldn't run? Yeah. I have had uh, unbelievable positive support. But sure, I've had people who, who, uh, who disagree with this, and I've had a lot of people who have changed their minds over the last month. You know, I really believe in the process of the primary. So we don't start where we end. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I've been able to do over the last month is talk to people about things they may not know. You know, they may know that I ran for governor four years ago, but they don't know about my legal background with the lawsuits. They may not know about the work that I did on Dodd-Frank and financial regulation. They may not know about the work that I've been doing getting more people to vote in New York State and really pushing for reform. So I've really been using this opportunity as a chance to say, you know, one part of me, but there's a lot more to, to share. Right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I, uh, we, could talk, we could talk for so long. We could talk for so long. There's so many issues I'd love yeah. to address, so we'll have to have you back, uh -huh. um, hopefully before too long. But Zephyr Teachout, thank you so much oh, for joining us. Thank you us. so much. Our next guest has been on the show before to talk about the Trump travel ban. He's a Brooklyn Jew and a lawyer for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE. But this time he joins us for personal reasons. I'll let him get into the details. But on a recent Shabbat, he was disinvited from delivering a sermon at his New York City synagogue. The reason, he says, is because of his work with CARE. He prefers not to name the synagogue, fearing that there will be the wrong kind of backlash. So we're not able to reach out to the synagogue for their comments. But this is his story. Albert Kahn, welcome back to Mormon 2BK. Thank you so much for having me. And so there's a lot going on in the world that you work in right now with immigration. We'll maybe try to get, that, get to that at the end of our conversation if we have a little bit of time. But so tell us what happened at the synagogue and with this sermon you were going to deliver. Yeah, this was about a week and a half ago when I was going to deliver the Devar Torah, the Friday night sermon at a New York synagogue. And we had reached out months ago to start the process of turning this into an event to celebrate Muslim-Jewish solidarity. And the event was actually even larger because I was also invited to provide the keynote at a interfaith iftar, the breakfast at the end of Ramadan. Mm. But unfortunately, on two hours' notice, I got a call from the rabbis at the synagogue telling me that it couldn't happen, that I couldn't deliver the sermon, that I couldn't even keynote the iftar, that I couldn't speak in any capacity in that temple because my work is just too controversial. Hmm. Did they say that explicitly? It was because of your work? Yes. And now CARE is a controversial organization. I'm sure you receive some of that in your work with it. But why, why was it controversial for them, do you think? And why would it have been controversial for the congregation? I mean, there sadly are predictable flashpoints between the Muslim and Jewish communities that so often make it difficult for us to come together and work on the issues where we have common agreement. And that was the very point of my sermon, mm -hmm. to talk about how you overcome the differences over the Middle East to build bridges of trust and mutual engagement here in New York. Mm -hmm. 
but the irony was that proved a message that was too controversial to give, even at the moment when it was needed most. Had they seen a copy of your sermon? Had yeah, you seen something? we had worked on the talk for, you know, I was invited a few months in advance. I gave them multiple drafts. We came up with messaging that they loved. They knew that I was going to speak directly to that point and speak about the fact that the New York chapter of CARE doesn't engage in any foreign policy discussions, the sorts of discussions that are most controversial in these two communities. Mm -hmm. Does it have to do specifically with CARE's position on Israel being critical of Israel? I, and we didn't get into that level of detail, but I think that would be a natural assumption. I mean, I've been doing Muslim-Jewish interfaith work since I was 17 years old, and I would say the overwhelming majority of the disagreement between the two communities has circled around Israel and Palestine. And you wrote that this was particularly disheartening for you because of your familial relationship with the synagogue, right? Yeah. This is a synagogue that my great, great, great grandfather, that his children, that their children attended. That It's a synagogue that when I told my grandmother that I would be delivering the Devaratora, she compelled. And it was heartbreaking to tell her that I wouldn't be delivering the talk, that she wouldn't be able to see the video. As you mentioned, how ironic that what you are trying to do is to sort of establish this interfaith dialogue, and for those very reasons, you were barred from delivering this speech. And I think it speaks to the danger of what I see increasingly, where we have all of these institutions that want to do interfaith work, that want to stand in solidarity, but they don't want to take risks. And so they choose hand-picked partners on the other side who won't cause any controversy, but who won't be able to engage the majority of these other communities. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to have solidarity light, half-hearted solidarity, solidarity that we can point to and feel good about, but we never actually are building the sorts of trust between the vast majority of our communities at the moment when we need it most. And so when I hear something like this, I think, okay, you have a synagogue. It's dependent a lot on donations from mm -hmm. the congregation. You have individuals who might hear this message and be a little bit ruffled. Not, maybe not by the message, but by, you know, the messenger, maybe. I mean, your position at CARE. And are they, do you think they're thinking of that? Are they thinking about the, the synagogue's lifeblood in that way, that it is just a little too risky as far as, um, you know, fundraising is concerned? I, I mean, I, we never got into that level of detail, and I don't want to presume uh, that it was one specific form of pushback. What I think they feared was the pushback overall. And I think that, you know, it's not always easy to partner across these divisions. But that's why it's so important, especially for the institutions that are so built up, that are so prominent, that have the capacity to amplify this message to organizations and to constituents who wouldn't otherwise hear it. Because if we always depend on the same organizations, those maybe not as central to our communities, to be the voices of interfaith engagement, well, that voice will never be quite loud enough. Mm -hmm. And in the article that you wrote in the foreword, you mentioned, you talk about the perils of what you described as solidarity light or safe solidarity. And I think you talked about that a little bit. How can that be sort of more dangerous than the lack thereof? 
Because when we have safe solidarity, we tell ourselves we've done our job, that we've had the interfaith speaker, we've had the discussion, we've had the programming that proves that we are the good guys, that we are taking the time to think about interfaith solidarity. But if it's not coming with the risks that are entailed when you reach out to the organizations that represent the majority mm -hmm. of other interfaith communities, mm -hmm. then you're not really taking the—you're not investing the way you need to to have meaningful successes in this arena. I've seen so many you know, churches and synagogues and mosques across the city who will want to have something that they can point to, like a merit badge but without actually making the sorts of choices, the hard choices you have to make when you say that it's more important to me to stand with my neighbor than it is to fear the potential backlash from those who would be intolerant of that message. What was the reaction to the article from anyone in the community or from individuals at the synagogue? Well, it was really heartening to see the interfaith leaders who responded by, you know, standing with me to say that this was unacceptable, that this was going against everything they believed in with our work to bring the Muslim and Jewish communities together. I mean, it, it, to many of the people who I told, this was a shock that, you know, care that the most prominent Muslim civil rights group could be too controversial a partner mm. for this sort of programming. That, I think, really shows how far we still need to go, especially when we're only a couple days away from learning about the decision in the Muslim ban case, a case that will call for unprecedented levels of engagement between these two interfaith communities in the event that the court rules the wrong way. Right, right. Well, so what are your future plans for being affiliated with this synagogue? I hope we have a way to work together, to move past this, to find a way, despite those who may have ruffled feathers at the thought of me speaking, to still build those bridges between those two communities, because I know they sincerely want to do this work. Mm -hmm. And I know there are still a wellspring of good intentions in that organization. I just, I know that they need the push from advocates like me, from other interfaith advocates, from other people within the community to make it clear that we have to do more. Well, Albert, unfortunately we're out of time. We'll have to have you come back to talk about some of the immigration issues going on at the border right now. Another time. Another time. Okay, thanks. That's the show for today. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about what the mayor's office is doing about mental health issues in New York City. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by me, Ross Tuttle, with Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hogaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker, and our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 